this is Ginger Newsom, and you're listening to the RUF Ole Miss podcast for September 26, 2007. Revelation chapter 5. Let's give our attention tonight to the uh, reading of God's Word. John says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God." from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. They shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. This is God's Word. We have a lot to cover in this particular chapter of Revelation, and so I'm going to jump right into it. But the only introduction I want to give to you is to listen very carefully and remember the things that I've been inviting you to do in the last couple of weeks. Because in the last few weeks, we've been noticing that what John sees on the other side of the door... Remember, I do not believe that what we're getting here in chapters 4 and 5 are visions of the future... They are not. Rather, John is getting a chance to see reality itself. He goes through the door, through the veil that hides heaven from us and gets to see the world the way in which God sees the world. And what he sees there is God in absolute charge. And last week I tried to suggest to you that there was something in this person of Jesus that people found that made them more than happy to go marching to their own deaths. And were you not even curious as to find what it is that they knew that we do not? 
You follow me in that question? What is it that they knew about this Jesus that they had found that we don't seem to get a grasp of? Well, tonight we come to it. (laughs) In many ways, tonight is the answer to that question. Revelation chapter 5 is, I would suggest to you, the center of the center of the book of Revelation. Everything culminates. It reaches the highest point that it can get to here in this chapter. Everything else from here is just details on the other side of chapter 5. And so therefore we have to ask the question, what is it that people found so wondrous in Jesus? Here's the answer. That He was the answer to everything. In Christ, John feels like he has found the answer to life's most fundamental problems. Jesus, I'm going to suggest to you tonight, solves the problem of history. He solves the problem of redemption. And he solves the problem of joy. The problem of history, the problem of of, um, redemption, and then finally the problem of joy. Okay, let's take a look at these visions in point number one. Jesus solves the problem of history. Because the very next thing that we see is a scroll. Okay? And it's a unique scroll, John tells us, because it's a scroll that has writing both on the front and on the back. Now just for a second, imagine, if you will, what a scroll did in ancient Near Eastern cultures. For most people, the only kinds of scrolls that had writing both on the front and the back were typically legal documents. Legal documents that would always have to write typically on the front and the back side of a scroll. By the way, the reason why it was unusual to write on the front and the back is because a scroll was made from basically flattened and dried papyrus plant. They would lay the papyrus out sort of flat and they would put some kind of glue or adhesive across the top of it, making one side very smooth, which was perfect for writing. But the other side still had the bumpy side. In other words, you didn't write on the back side unless you had a lot of material that needed to be kept in one place. Does that make sense? And so to see something written on both sides was unique at that time. And so what I think John is saying is, is what's contained in this scroll is everything that needs to be said on the matter to which it pertains. In other words, whatever that scroll is about is completely contained within that scroll. And of course, these scrolls in ancient Near Eastern times were rolled up. They took them and they sort of rolled them up as they went. And they would take at the very end of the scroll and put these big globs of hot wax on this place where the fold met the rest of the scroll. And they would take, usually a king would take a signet ring and would put an indention on the uh, glob of wax that would seal the scroll and make it authentic. Does that make sense? And of course, the more seals that you had, the more important that you were. The scroll that we're looking at here in heaven actually has seven seals. And remember, the number seven is a number of perfection. And so therefore, what John is saying is, is I saw a scroll that was of colossal importance and was everything that there was to say in the matter. Y'all, I think that most commentators agree, and I think they're right, that what we have in the scroll is God's purpose for human history. Very oftentimes a scroll was used to signify the passing of time. Do you understand why? Because you would have to unroll it. There was a sense of the, the unfolding of the scroll corresponded to the unfolding of time as it goes past. What John looks up and sees coming from the throne is the very pattern and the plan of God for human history. And all of a sudden, a strong angel comes up. Now look, he's a strong angel because he speaks to all of God's creation without having to need uh, a microphone of any kind. But he comes and he shouts, Who 
is worthy to come and to open this scroll? And suddenly in the text, John begins to weep. And this, I think, is the most interesting part of this passage. Why is John crying? Why is he so sad that there's nobody found in heaven who is worthy to open the scroll? Well, I don't think it's because he's just all that curious. <laughs> you know, oh, come on, no, please, open it, open it. That's not why he's curious. What John realizes, he knows what the scroll is. He knows that what is contained there is the very, God's complete plan to judge mankind and to bring about justice on the earth. Y'all, what's inside the scroll are God's plans of how He's going to set the world to rights. It's the mystery that Paul talks about that's being unrolled in Christ beginning there in Ephesians chapter 1 that it talks about in the book of Ephesians. Paul, John looks up and sees the scroll. The angel asks who can be found and no one is worthy. And suddenly John begins to weep. And he weeps for a very, very good reason. Because if you haven't noticed this, you're just simply not paying attention. There is a monumental problem of human existence when you start to look at human history. This is a monumental problem. And you know what it is? There is so much justice that goes unpunished. There is so much injustice that actually goes unresolved throughout human history. The most vivid of which I think has happened in our own you know, sort of brief personal history. You know, what do you do? What did you do in your own mind in order to make sense of what, how it was that Sung Hu Cho sort of walks into a Virginia Tech class building and begins to gun down 32 people, wounds 25 others before turning the gun on himself? How did you deal with that? To be honest with you, most of us, we don't deal with it. We sort of keep it at a distance. We look at it and go, wow, that's awful. Click. Let's see if there's something else we can watch on television. We don't have to deal with those kinds of things. But don't you remember, though, when you first heard about it? And you heard that what Cho had done is turn the gun on himself. Don't you remember that knot in your stomach? Don't you remember that sense of something just not being right about that? Because suddenly you realize that that guy doesn't have to face justice. You begin to realize that there's this gnawing desire to at least bring him before the families of the people that he killed to answer for his crimes. We don't even get the chance to do that because of what he did. And there's this ache inside the stomach that looks and says, this is just not right. Y'all, we actually had a memorial for the Virginia Tech students here in this very room uh, last uh, fall, in the, the week after the whole Virginia Tech thing. I don't know how many of you actually uh, came to that memorial, but there were a group of students that had some sort of loose affiliation with uh, Virginia Tech or otherwise who came and lit candles for each one of the victims, and it was, it was a pretty nice ceremony. But at one point during the thing, and forgive me, if, if this, you know, I don't know, if this uh, professor actually comes within the hearing of my voice, I guess that's fine. I just disagree. He stood up in talking about the situation and gave some of his reminiscences about his time at Virginia Tech. And at one point during his message, he said, you know, there really is no sense in us asking the question, why? The truth was, the man was just insane. What are you going to do? And then breezed right on past it. And I was sitting right back there, (laughs) a couple rows past Lauren back there. And I suddenly thought to myself, you have got to be kidding me. Is that your answer? (laughs) 
be quite honest with you, it's a little easy to come and give little short, glib answers like that in this place. But what are you going to say to the parents of those people? Are you going to look at the parents of someone who's just lost their child to a madman, crazy or not, and just say, hey, you know what? The man was insane. What are you going to do? Is that going to be your answer to them? But listen, y'all, you've got to understand... There is that little sense of injustice at watching what happened in Virginia Tech gets multiplied a thousand times when you begin to realize that that stuff happens every single day. Look, that longing for wrongs to be made right, for justice to be established, and for innocence to be protected is assaulted every single day. Let's take a trip over to Darfur right now. Let's take a look at what's going on in terms of human rights violations in China. Let's go to Somalia or any other third world country that can't feed itself. Come as it were to the inner cities of our own American cities and see the people there who longing for justice from a legal system that they cannot get simply because they can't afford it. Go to Oxford, Mississippi into some of the little corners that we don't really drive through in our day. And see exactly what's going on in terms of justice there. My friends, listen to me. There are people dying every single hour of gross injustices. And the second that you begin to get a little bit of a look at it, there's something in you that looks and goes, Ah! And there's a longing on the inside. And what that longing is, is a question to God saying, Who will make this right? Who's going to fix this? Is there any answer? Is there any meaning? Will someone answer at all? And to be quite honest with you, your generation is completely ill-equipped to answer this question. For many of you, you have lived with a really sort of a harder form of the postmodern mind, which basically denies that there's any objective truth anywhere. And so therefore, we're not allowed to sort of put any sort of sense of right or wrong on any kind of, uh, of moral standard. And the truth of the matter is, this has created a huge loss of justice, a loss of direction and purpose. Stanley Fish, legal professor in uh, teaching in Miami, I think at present, was asked in the days after 9-11 if some of his views of evil had changed. Stanley Fish would always say that evil is just a matter of social construct. You made it up, one society thinks one thing is wrong, another one thinks something else is wrong. And he was asked uh, 9-11. And he looked and said, I haven't changed my view at all. He said, sure, the people in New York City, after the towers came down, were crying and weeping and falling to pieces. But if you saw the very same camera angles in Baghdad, they were all clapping and cheering. He said, so therefore it doesn't matter what's right and wrong. What you call evil in some sense was good to some other people. Truth of the matter is, right and wrong, there is no such thing. The truth is, it just matters what tribe you were arbitrarily born into. Look, unfortunately, your generation doesn't even know how to do what John did. Because John began to look and said, if there is no truth in history, we all need to cry about it. And he begins to weep. And unfortunately, our generation doesn't even have the common sense enough to weep. And to look around at what happened at Virginia Tech and look and say, is there someone who will answer the charge of history? But at last, an elder comes forward and he goes up to John and he looks and says, but take a look at the lion. 
There is one who, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. What's the elder saying? The lion says there is one coming. The elder says there's one coming and he's a lion and he's going to roar. And when he roars, he is going to set the world to rights. You see what John is saying? John is saying that King Jesus is coming. And the, and the, and the, 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 the kernel of purpose in his coming is to ultimately set all wrongs to right. That's Jesus' purpose. He shows up to come to say, I am now in my own person and in my own work going to correct and execute justice for the entire world. And what that means is, is that justice is coming. There is an answer. There is someone out there who can open the scroll in John's terms. And the truth of the matter is, all of heaven worshipped it in the process. All of heaven erupted in joy when they realized that there really is an answer to the problem of human history. That when my gut cringes and rolls and turns over suffering and pain in every corner, I can know that there's an answer. And so John decides he's going to look. He turns and he looks to see the lion of the tribe of Judah. But he sees something that he didn't expect and that brings me to the second point. Because Jesus not only solves the problem of injustice in human history, but he also solves the problem of redemption. He solves the problem of redemption. Because when John looks to see the lion, what he sees is a lamb with his throat cut. A lamb who was slain. On his head he has ten horns. A horn, if you go back into the Old Testament, was always a symbol for a king. A king was one that was pictured of as a horn rising up. And because he has ten of them, that means he's a complete king. There's a king in fullness there. And he has eyes, as it were, and eyes that were, that, that, um, uh, excuse me, there's, there's crowns that he has on his head uh, 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 that he has seven of, saying that he's the perfect, key, uh, perfect king. And then the seven eyes that he has, we are explained, are the seven spirits. The seven spirits I, spirits, I believe, being a picture for the very perfection of the Holy Spirit of God. And where does the Lamb come from? The Lamb comes from the center of the throne. Do you see what John is saying? There was one who emerged from God, possessing the very Spirit of God, having the crowns on his head and horns showing his absolute kingship. There is one who is coming who is God himself. I think John is giving us a glorious picture of the Trinity in the very center of the throne of God. In the midst of the throne, God the Father, the Lamb coming forth, possessing the Spirit of God in Himself. It's a glorious, extraordinary picture of what we have in the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. And all of a sudden, everybody gets very excited. (laughs) And all of heaven erupts in praise. We're coming to that in just a minute as to why they do. But notice what they do. The first thing people do when they see the the lamb coming is they offer up their prayers. The incense. You see, did you read that? That there's great bowls that they begin to pour out. You know what God's people begin to do? They They begin to pray. I love that thought. Because if you connect that to the whole point about history, do you see what John is saying? John is saying that now that Jesus has come and fulfilled the purpose of history, now you actually have something worth praying for. Some of you are tied up in knots at the thought that someone would claim that God would be absolutely sovereign over everything in human history. As I believe he is portrayed to be in the one who can open the scrolls. You're very undone by this because on one level you look and say, well, if God already knows what's going to happen and he's in control of it all, then why should I pray? 
And John's answer to you in this glorious little scene of what's going on in heaven is, is because there is an answer to history, now you actually have a reason to pray. Now your prayers can actually mean something because there is a purpose. Otherwise, they're just random pleadings that you don't have any idea whether they're going to come true or not. But in the glorious center of human history, there is a lamb who can open the scroll. And because he can, guess what, y'all? God's people can pray with confidence in knowing that he will hear his people. It suddenly makes our prayers purposeful and sensible. But here's what I want to ask about this next question. Why is it? Why is it that people are so excited? Because to be honest with you, it's easy to get very excited about point number one until you realize its implications. In other words, you can look at point number one and say, that's great, Les. God, execute your justice. I can't wait to see Cho all of a sudden one day in heaven get get what he deserves. Oh, he'll face the judgment. But see, when you begin to read the rest of the Bible, you begin to find that the Bible doesn't leave anyone untarnished by injustice. In other words, if God is going to come and begin to mete out justice, are you certain that you want justice for yourself? Now, some of you may be saying that you feel like great injustices have been committed against you, but God's estimation of it is that there have been just as many injustices committed by you. And we suddenly begin to realize that if the lion is coming and he's going to execute justice, we're all done. So you look at that and say, how can this be good news? I want you to feel this for a second because this is the key to the passage. How can it be good news that there is a lion of the tribe of Judah? And the truth of the matter is, John would have to weep at that. Because John himself knew that he was a fallible person having committed all kinds of injustices. How is it that the Lamb is going to right the wrongs of injustice? Well, let me throw out a couple of thoughts to you. Because the one who sits on the throne has elsewhere established two rights, two things that are absolutely true. The first thing that God has established is, is that His law is inviolable. He says in Ezekiel 18.4 that the soul that sins is the soul that dies. Did you hear that? The soul that sins is the soul that dies. If anyone in this room, God is saying, has committed even the slightest act of injustice because our God is infinitely holy, then the offense is an infinite offense. Man's eternal soul. And so you see the problem. That even the heartbroken parents of the Virginia Tech tragedy stand just as guilty as Cho does in the eyes of the Bible. As unsettling as that sounds. But the one who sits on the throne has also declared something else, y'all. In Ezekiel 18.23, by the way, the same chapter that the other declaration comes from, he declares that he has, I quote to you, no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Do you hear that? God looks and says he loves his creatures. He adores his creation, especially the crown of his creation, mankind. In other words, inasmuch as there is a law in the center of the universe, there is also love at the center of the universe. But how can God keep both? You follow me on this? You've got to feel this problem. Because if God honors His law to the exclusion of His love, then all of us die. Right? But if He honors His love to the exclusion of His law, then suddenly He ceases to be righteous and just. So what do we do about that problem? 
Listen to Horatius Bonner. Horatius Bonner was a great 19th century Scottish Puritan who said this. He says, law and love must be reconciled. The one cannot give way to the other. Both must stand, else the pillars of the universe be shaken. Hmm. Hyperbole? I don't think so. Because the world does not make sense, John is saying, unless you have both. Unless you can somehow fit God's absolute law with His glorious love, the world doesn't make sense. And may I say as boldly as I can that Allah and Muhammad and Islam do not have an answer to that question. Hinduism does not have a facility in order to deal with both of those realities. Buddhism cannot grapple adequately with those two extremes. Jesus alone comes. And what is He? Listen, listen very carefully. He is the Lion and the Lamb. When you look to the Lion, you see a Lamb that was slain. Do you see the genius of this? You see, because as a lion, Jesus upholds God's law of of perfection. He comes and lives a perfect life on your behalf. He comes and establishes a perfect life record. And so therefore can function as your perfect life. Living the life that you ought to have lived to offer to the Father. But as the lamb, he is worthy. In verse 9, for you were slain. Worthy is the Lamb. Why? Because you were slain. You see, Jesus died the death that His people deserved. Jesus took on Himself at the moment of the cross, the very pinnacle of human history, took on Himself all of the injustice, all of the violence, all of the lying, all of the lust, all of the gossip, all of the cheating, all of the wars, all of the famine, all of the hatred... He took it all on himself and his father killed him for it. So that he could not only be our life substitute, but also our death substitute as well. You see how Jesus solves the problem. Now law and love both have their perfect mix. The law was perfectly upheld in all of it. Sorable terribleness. But yet His love was never more fully and more gloriously and beautifully displayed than in the cross. And they both met in the exact same moment of human history. Wow. (laughs) Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive glory and power and honor. No wonder all of heaven erupts in praise. They begin to sing about it. They sing kind of the way we sing. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off your guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. And He comes and He offers that blood to all nations. I love this aspect. Did you notice that there at the end? He comes in verse 9. He says, For you ransom people for God from every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. In other words, there's not an ounce of racism behind the doors of heaven. Not an ounce of it. You know, I really wish that I could take all of you to, to, to New York this spring break. We're going to take a trip to New York this spring break, interestingly enough. Take a look at some of the things that uh, we, we see the church doing up there. But I wish that you could go and worship with me in a colorblind church. Because I fear that none of you have. Because for many of you, you've grown up in the South. But there's something really, really exhilarating about it. And I'm not sure exactly how to explain why, except to say that in places like that, where there are no racial divides among people, 
it just looks a whole lot more like heaven's going to look. Do you realize that? That our churches don't look like heaven. And there are times in which you get tempted to say that churches in the South ought to silence themselves until such a time as they can remedy that one great problem. That Sunday morning in the South is the most segregated moment in all of the week. And it's in the Christian church. That needs to like, oh, I don't know, be bothering us more than it does. I'm not saying there's huge issues to deal with in the process. But my friends, it ought to bother us that the place that looks the least like heaven is church. That's bad. (laughs) Right? God's redeemed people come out and they become kingdom and priests. They become a kingdom themselves. They themselves come and mediate this influence to the rest of the world. They go to people and look and say, Jesus has solved the answer to my most basic fundamental human problem. That I didn't know what to do about the law of God because I was cursed by it. But I also didn't know how I myself could bear the judgment of God. But in Jesus I found an answer to both problems. He comes to bring His justice. He is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. But He's also brought His love. He's the Lamb that was slain. And the kingdom of priests are those who go around and begin to see this expand throughout history. Look, this one of the ways in which you can tell that you've met Jesus. One of the ways in which you can tell that you've met Jesus is it begins to break down walls between you and people that you formerly couldn't stand. I, th- I think that's what the passage is saying. Y'all, and the whole place erupts in praise. And I'll finish with that one last thought. Because Jesus not only answers the problem of history, He not only answers the problem of redemption, but thirdly and finally, He answers the problem of joy. Look, I don't know about y'all, but verses 11 through 14 of Revelation chapter 5, like even if you don't believe the Bible here tonight, even if you're an absolute skeptic in this room tonight, you have to admit that that is some extraordinary prose. That is beautifully written, glorious praise. C.S. Lewis says that you haven't actually enjoyed something until you praise it. I'm going to mention this now. We're actually going to return to this over and over and over again in the rest of our series through the book of Revelation. But have you noticed the tendency in yourself to praise very naturally? We all think that praise is really when you kind of go to church and, oh, it's the praise time. Why? Because it says on the bulletin, we're going to praise and worship right now. Here we go. Ready? And we praise and worship. I'm not sure the Bible is quite as, uh, I don't know, stale as that. Look, you praise all the time. Whenever something good happens to you, what's the first thing you do? You whip out your cell phone and you dial somebody up. It is the most natural reaction of humankind when something good happens to you to share it. So much so that C.S. Lewis says that you're not actually even, you're not enjoying the thing that you're enjoying until you praise it. You notice that? It's just not any fun to, it's not any fun to have something good happen to you and not be able to tell somebody about it. I got to play golf last Friday. Uh, At least that's what I'll call it. I'm not sure if the two people that were playing with me would refer to it as golf. Anyway, but I got out there, and I'll be honest with you, I used to play a lot of golf when I was the campus minister at the University of Memphis, and since I've come here, I'm a little too busy, don't get much time to be able to do it. I had a really good time. But you know what occurred to me? Is my son is almost ready to be taken out to, uh, to play golf. It's almost time. I mean, Luke is three years old, and some of my very earliest memories, bear with me, we need a scholarship, okay, to college. Some of my earliest memories are riding around in a golf cart with my daddy. 
There was nothing cooler than when Daddy said, "Well, come on, son, we'll go, and you can um, you, know, you can get my golf clubs for me." It was just so great because you got to ride in the cart. And I know that my son will come unglued to do that. You know what I'm saying? I mean, literally, he, I mean, to ride in that cart will just be like you know nirvana for him. He will have reached you know total perfection. But can I tell you that? And listen, I had this literal thought. I knew we were going to be talking about this tonight. Last Friday, I thought, you know, it's time for me to bring Luke out. You know, I, mean, I know he's three years old, but it's time for him to take him out. Just me and him go out and play a quick nine or something. Help me kind of practice a little bit, get the kinks worked out of my already sorry game, and see kind of what happens. But you know the first thought that occurred to me was? Well, you know what? I'm not sure I want to do that, because what happens if I hit a hole in one? And the only person that, I can, that can vouch for me is my three-year-old son. Tell him, son, tell him. I hit a hole in one, didn't I? Daddy hit the ball in the top in one shot. It would be horrible to hit a hole in one and not be able to tell somebody about it. You want to know why? Because you were built to praise. <laughs> How's that? <laughs> Preacher tricks. Come right on around that illustration. You know, here it's coming. We'll get there. You were built to praise. Look, I'm telling you, there have been people on this campus who have been unable to talk about anything else but Halo 3 for the last two, 48 hours. And that's natural because they're taking great joy in it. Look, stop thinking of praise as being like, it's time for me to praise. And realize, look, you know what worship is? Worship is just simply what happens in your heart when you find something fascinating. And praise is what comes out of your mouth while you're worshiping. That's it. And the people of heaven have looked and they have seen, they, have never, they never tire. They never tire of looking into the mystery of what Jesus has done. That He is the Lion and He is the Lamb. And they never get tired of seeing it be wonderful. Do you know what that means? Y'all, it means that in the Christian view of reality, there is joy at the center of the universe. I've got to keep pressing this on you because I've got to be honest with you. Beginning next week, the story takes a dark turn. And we have to spend a handful of weeks in the midst of some rather difficult material. Don't, don't, don't quit on me. Come on, walk with me through it. But you've got to keep chapter 5 in mind that the citizens of heaven have looked and have realized that life has a happy ending. No matter where you find yourself this week. Isn't that the worst of it all? I'll be honest with you. Watching the tragedy at Virginia Tech. Watching the tragedy that is injustice in our American cities. Watching the tragedy that is the way in which I pathetically try to parent my children and be a faithful spouse to my wife. Watching all that and seeing the overwhelming sense of how pitifully we all fail. And I'm the chief instigator in the midst of it. You see, the temptation in the midst of that is to suddenly think, you know, it's not only that I'm sad and that the world is sad, it's that life is sad. Yeah, that happened to you. Where all of a sudden everything goes dark. I mean, it's not just the thing. I mean, it's not just these problems that are happening in my family. It's not just that he or she broke up with me. It's that it's all bad. And I can't see anything. But listen to me. In Revelation chapter 5, we see that at the very center of everything, there are overjoyed people. (laughs) 
exploding in praise because they have found something forever fascinating. Are you bored by that? Well, you won't be. (laughs) The destiny that every Christian has is the ultimate sappy, cheesy, happy ending. And they all lived happily ever after. Because in the very center of human history, there is one who is both a lion and a lamb, who will correct every injustice, who will right every wrong, and who will swallow up all mourning with absolute delight. You know, there's a part of me that wonders that even if you didn't believe Christianity, you'd believe that because of how good it was. And I kind of think that's the idea. (laughs) Considered an invitation. Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, we, (laughs) if Thou hast drawn a thousand times, we sang tonight, we are unbelievable amnesiacs. A week ago tonight, we, we, we could have agreed with everything that was said tonight, but yet we had a whole week where life got hard, things got busy, and suddenly things just seemed sad. And the four walls of our dorm or our apartment begin to close in on us. But we thank you that you have given us a revelation that behind the very veil of reality, not in some distant, unknown, unconceivable future, but right now, there are myriads upon myriads and 10,000 times 10,000 who stand awash in utter rapturous joy. And good grief, how blind we are that we can't seem to even hear a note of it. But Lord Jesus, in just a couple of seconds, we're going to lift our feeble voices to sing like those people sing around you. Holy, holy, holy. And we ask that maybe for the three and a half minutes while we sing that song, that we would join with the heavenly host and hear distant echoes from Your Word, that we are not alone, and that we sing with a choir that is as large as anyone could imagine, and that there is more joy and fullness out there than we ever thought possible. And maybe, just maybe, we would see something so lovely it would transform us. Would you do that? Make our trip here tonight worthwhile because of what you long to do in us in showing us the Lamb. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.